Hey, Dr. Mike here. This podcast is about bringing awareness to gynecological cancer. Stay tuned to learn a lot from our special guest. You're listening to Live Foreverish, a show dedicated to helping you live just a little longer. Here's your host, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal Gosser. All right, welcome to Live Foreverish. We have a great program today, bringing awareness to a specific type of cancer. And we got, we got you know, the expert of the experts really on with us today. Uh, his name is Dr. Robert Wenham. He's the chair of the Gynecologic Oncology Program at Moffitt Cancer Center. And he's prof- professor at the Morsani School of Medicine. Dr. Wenham is a principal investigator for numerous studies to improve outcomes in uh, gynecologic cancer. His main research activities include the use of novel drugs and cellular therapies, and he participates um, in many studies to explore new concepts and approaches to cancer uh, cancer biology and therapy. Uh, Dr. Wenham has also received the Molly Cade Ovarian Cancer Research Award uh, from the Gynecologic Cancer Foundation. Dr. Wenham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal. Uh, as long as we're going by our, our names like that, please call me Dr. Robin. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you for that. Yeah. So let's start with this. Um, Dr. Rob, there's a lot of different types of oncologists out there. We were kind of hoping we could start with the for the audience, just kind of a, a quick like what crash course, right? On the different types of oncologists. Uh, and then, then, and then, bring it back to you, and 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 what what types of cancers you are specifically researching and treating? Absolutely. So it's uh, not uncommon that even in our field of medicine, among physicians, it's not quite clear what a gynecologic oncologist is, and how that differs from maybe a a surgical oncologist or a medical oncologist or a gynecologist. And and so just just briefly, it's obviously it's somebody who takes care of gynecologic cancers. But it's special in the fact that we deal not just with the radical surgeries that may be necessary for the cancer, but have the entirety of the care where we can also do the treatment either with chemotherapy or targeted therapy. Now, what types of cancers are we looking at? I know we specifically wanted to talk about ovarian cancer. Can you share some of the other types of cancer? Yeah, so other types of gynecologic cancers would include the most common cancer, which is uterine cancer. And of that, endometrial cancer makes up by far the number one cancer that we see. Ovarian cancer would rank second on that list. And then that's followed by things like cervical cancer, um, uh, vaginal cancer, uh, vulvar cancer, uh, and even some rare types of cancers that are related to gestation called gestational trophoblastic disease. So, it, so when you're, you know, when you think about all these different types of um, gynecologic cancers, right? You just named out a whole bunch. One of the things we really w- want to hope for in this conversation with you, uh, Doctor Rob, is like giving giving some like call to actions to our audience. You know, really letting them leave with some nuggets of wisdom to really take care of their health, reduce risk. So, when you look at all these different types of um, cancers you treat specifically ovarian, what kind of family connection, genetic connection is there? And, 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 and because of those kind of connections, what should women, you know, with, with, that, with histories of these cancers, with, who are at risk for these cancers, what, what's really the best recommendation for them? Well, I mean, there are things that you inherit that can increase your risk for gynecologic cancers, but there are some very modifiable 
things you can do to your lifestyle for gynecologic cancer. So I'll start with maybe the modifiable ones that, you know, you don't inherit because that's something we can really tangibly do something about. And, and the number one is uterine cancer, or endometrial cancer. The number of endometrial cancers in the, that, that I've been treating has doubled since I finished my training. And that's been directly related to the obesity problem that we have in the United States. Yeah. Uh, because obesity has gone up so much, it's the number one risk factor for developing endometrial cancer because the increased estrogen that our fat cells will produce because it converts a lot of the androgens that come out of the adrenal gland into estrogens. And then that bombards the uterus over time and can lead to unregulated growth of the endometrium causing the endometrial cancer. So we, we could literally slice, you know, half the cancers I treat by, by, by addressing the obesity problem. In fact, in some ways, we've recognized in my field that it's actually almost an index disease for obesity-related diseases and that we can do more for somebody's lifespan to, to address the causes of the obesity than just mm -hmm. addressing the cancer by itself. Wow. Uh, and so I want to go back to... You, you mentioned several different types of cancer, and one stood out to me is cervical cancer. And it, it stands out to me because I feel like now when I go to the gynecologist, it seems like there's just more, more discussions around that. There's the, the HPV mm -hmm. vaccine. Oh, yeah. I feel like maybe that's in the news more maybe it's just in my in my sphere that i'm well, seeing it more. it's in your sphere not ours but that's <laughs> it's okay in, it's in my sphere <laughs> um and, and so can you touch on that it, as it relates to kind of prevention as well with as it relates to cervical cancer because you mentioned you know obesity with endometrial cancer and and what was the other type um endometrial mm -hmm. and uterine. uterine yeah what about cervical so that's the next, the next one we could really address and make a dent in if we wanted to. Uh, so most cervical cancer, almost almost all of it, not not all of it, but almost all of it, uh, is related to something called the human papillomavirus. I'm so glad to hear that you are more aware of it and that, you, that more people might be aware of it because truly this day and age, with the advent of the HPV vaccine and of good screening, we, we should be able to get cervical cancer almost to be a historical problem in the next decade or so. Mm. Uh, the, the problem has been a little bit of the uptake for the vaccine. Uh, you need to vaccinate before uh, people are exposed to the human papillomavirus. And the human papillomavirus comes in dozens of varieties. And almost anyone who's ever had sexual activity is going to be exposed to human papillomavirus. And so the key is to vaccinate before that exposure happens. And that's vaccinating both boys and girls because one of the um, rising incidences that we see of esophageal and laryngeal cancer is related to HPV as well. So uh, it, it's kind of a it's kind of sad that there's still a number of people who don't vaccinate, but we have the opportunity to really kind of make a dent in that. And then there's then there's screening with Pap smears and even more recently using HPV testing as part of that. Uh, to increase our ability to detect pre-invasive cancer. Yes, yeah. and I know you have to sign a special disclosure now. It's not automatically included, which uh, I think that takes us to one of our next questions. Well, what's not included? The, 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 the vaccination? The HPV-specific oh. screening. It's, well, they give you a disclaimer that the insurance 
will not cover it. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and so you should expect an additional out-of-pocket payment, payment to do that. To do Ooh. that. And, and so you have the option to do it or decline it. Yeah. And, and people probably, maybe they maybe don't understand they don't, or what, they don't it, understand is, it, what yeah. it means, or they just feel like that's just another cost they're right. not willing I think to this, pay. This is probably a whole other conversation about insurance <laughs> and how all of that but, affects everything, right. you know. Um, but uh, I, let's, let's, so one of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Dr. Rob, uh, you know, and, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm not an oncologist. I was a radiologist in, in days past. Um, is it is it true that when you finally see the patient that a lot of these cancers, ovarian, endometrial, uterine, whatever, that they're 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 often in advanced stages, and how how obviously that's going to make your job a little tougher. But so is that is that a correct statement? So, so it, it is and it's not. So it, it, it is for some types of cancers like ovarian cancer. And ovarian cancer in particular because we don't have a, an effective screening strategy to, to, to make a dent in, in survival. Uh, people have looked in you know, over a quarter million women in randomized studies at uh, the use of tumor markers or ultrasounds. And, and, and we've just been unable to show an effective screening strategy for this. Um, where are there, there are other cancers, such as cervical cancer, uh, which there, there is an effective screening. And we do detect a lot of early stage disease, which has made a big impact on survival. Uh, and in uterine cancer, uh, we're fortunate that most endometrial cancer bleeds. Uh, and then that bleeding will sometimes be an alarm bell to bring someone in. So the majority still of endometrial cancers we treat are early stage. Yeah. Well, let's let's bring this conversation now to the ovarian cancer, because I know that was one of the big ones we wanted to talk to you about. I, I have a good friend that's actually going through um, um, ovarian cancer treatment right now. Mm -hmm. it, it, Dr. Rob, it was it was found late. <laughs> it was it was pretty advanced. I don't remember what stage um, she was diagnosed with it, but she went through the whole thing, rounds of chemo and radiation to shrink it and then, then surgery and then some more chemo. And good news, she's doing she's doing better right now. She looks cancer free. Um, but we also know that there's a chance of all this coming back. So let's talk a little bit about ovarian cancer. What are some of the causes? Um, you mentioned there's no screening, so we get late um, stage disease. And, and because of that, I guess treatment's more aggressive. So tell us a little bit about uh, ovarian cancer cause, and what are some of the, the the stages of treatment a woman would go through? Sure. Uh, what makes it even more confusing is it's really ovarian cancers. Uh, there's three different major categories, and of that, there's about a dozen subtypes of each. So, so the the one that most people think of when they're thinking of ovarian cancer uh, is really epithelial type ovarian cancers, and these are most often uh, what we call uh, aggressive, fast-moving uh, cancers, and they are typically sporadic, meaning that they don't happen because someone inherited some sort of gene, but they're a process of the aging. There are certain things that can, can increase uh, the propensity of them, which is the number of ovulatory cycles that a woman has. So early age of starting menstruation, late age of menopause, lack of having children, uh, not breastfeeding, um, not taking the birth control pill, 
ironically, because the birth control pill can actually decrease the risk of ovarian cancer by decreasing that ovulation. The other thing that makes it also confusing is that most ovarian cancer probably doesn't come from the ovary. It probably comes from the fallopian tube. And so, so we've seen that. And so one of the things that makes it hard to screen is that, you know, a few cancer cells in a fallopian tube shedding out into the peritoneum, you know, can be stage three disease very rapidly. So to be, have an effective screening test, we're going to have to be able to detect it as such a, such a minuscule amount to, as to be able to affect the survival and be so confident in that result that we'll sterilize a woman to, to act upon it. So that's what makes the screen difficult. That, that, go ahead. Sorry, Dr. Crystal. Well, I was going to talk a little bit about the genetic propensity, though, because it is something that people think about, because um, we know of certain genes that can increase the risk of developing it, and it causes those uh, patients to have it at an earlier age than we normally see it. Normally, the age for ovarian cancer is around 60, and we can see it uh, in the 40s in women who have particularly these things called BRCA mutations. Well, let's, I'm going to back, before we get into like the stages of treatment for ovarian, let's this idea that, okay, so there's been a lot of research looking for that, that good screening tool, yes. right? And I know, I know, I know it's difficult. Is there anything on the horizon that looks promising to you um, that may down the line, you know, or, or hopefully sooner than later is, is going to be something that's going to have high sensitivity like we want in a, in a tool like that? Yeah, so I think we're going to make progress on certain types of ovarian cancer in increments. So, so it's not that it's a, it's not that it's a hopeless battle, but I think we're going to be able to get some effective screening tools um, in line. And, and and along that line, there are investigators looking at entire panels of different type of blood tests and trying to use those in the right types of populations. So, if you use it in the right population, you can increase your positive predictive value. And, and, uh, and that, so that's the reason for using a specific population. The blood tests are, are a little bit variable, but they can look at certain uh, proteins uh, that, are, that are in the blood, or you can look at fragments of DNA. So there's something called cell-free DNA, and that may allow us to detect it at a very, very early time point. Uh, what we have to learn is if we can be confident enough in that to act upon it, because I, acting upon it, we may be talking about removing a woman's fallopian tubes, ovaries, or both. Yeah. So just kind of thinking about the, I guess, the need for more advancements in the screening, what would you say to women out there as it relates to signs, symptoms? If you are experiencing this, see mm -hmm. your gynecologist first, of course, and then it would progress to you uh, the the on the gynecologic oncologist. Uh, so, what are some of those symptoms that we should look out for? Well, so so the symptoms are ones that are somewhat nonspecific, but include things like bloating, uh, getting full early when you're when you've been eating, um, not uh, getting more constipated, and not being able to pass your bowels as much, uh, crampiness, uh, things like that. Pain, interestingly, is not a big feature uh, early. Uh, and, and actually all these symptoms though, are ones that tend to develop when it's not early stage. So, so it's nice to have these, these symptoms, but you can see the problem in it is that first of all, they're very nonspecific. So, so many primary care doctors, yeah. I feel terrible for them. I feel terrible for the patients because they'd say, well, I was having all these problems for months and they thought it was my bowels or they thought it was something else. 
the truth is there wasn't probably really much that they could do differently to, to change the stage and outcome at that point. Uh, so what we have been successful on, uh, and so there is hope here. I don't want, I don't want to make it sound bad. Okay. <laughs> there, we, we have gotten good at understanding the genetics of this better. So about 25% uh, has some sort of inheritable cause. Uh, and so we can, we can find those populations now and people are getting much more savvy because a lot more genetic testing is happening and we can actually prevent cancers from happening in the first place. So that, that's, that's number one. I think that that's great. The second thing is we've gotten way better at our, at our treatment of this disease. So we've had the, the, the survival times add many years since I even started this. So those are the two things that we're getting right. So my friend um, who just went through all of this, I, she did, talking about like how it presented and stuff. Mm -hmm. The only complaint she had was was like the bloating, and they she went down with her primary care physician an irritable bowel type picture type route, and they pursued that for a while. I don't know how it eventually got caught, how they saw it, and 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 they and they and they got got the diagnosis they needed. But she went, yeah, you're right. She went down a whole like bowel workup versus anything gynecologic. At first. Right. So I wonder, and would you see, you know, most people will have a routine lab workup. Do you see any changes in the, the presentation of the white blood cells? Do you see, are there any clues there? Or by the time you see those, is it, is it already, has it progressed? Yes. So, so probably the, the number one question I'm asked is, is how about CA125, which is a potential blood test or tumor marker? for some types of ovarian cancer. And, and unfortunately, the vast majority of times when a CA125 is elevated, that patient does not have cancer. And there's a significant number of early stage one and twos, about half of them that have normal CA125s at that time. Yeah, uh, her, her CA125, Dr. Uh, Rob, uh, was, was elevated. And now that she's gone through all the treatment, it is normal. So that, it's a good I know, is good news. Yeah, once you know you have disease and we follow it, that's really its usefulness. Yeah. And that was the point. I know some of the life extension customers, um, I've reviewed lots of lab tests, and there are some people routinely every year, they they, they get, track yeah. the the CA-125, and that's just something that they, they just have set their mind to it, and they do it every year yeah. to... Yeah. To track the changes. Yes. So, Dr. Rob, you mentioned part of the, this is, is survival is better because treatment's better. How, well, how is that? How is treatment better? What are we doing now that we weren't doing a few years ago? And then take take a let's take us a walk us down into the future a little bit. Where do you see a lot of this treatment going? Yeah. So, so not too many years ago, just twenty years ago, everyone would get one type of regimen. It was two different drugs. They were called carboplatin, paclitaxel. And that was it. You'd get treated and your treatment was over. And then we watched and waited to see if it came back. And unfortunately for most patients, it would come back at some point. Uh, we started to learn a little bit about the genetics again that we were talking about with BRCA uh, genes. And it turns out there's a bunch of other cousin genes that work like BRCA but aren't quite as strong. But they fall in this entire group of something called homologous recombination repair deficiency genes. And, and that just means that basically you've got a bunch of problems repairing your DNA, which is one of the reasons you got in trouble in the first place, and that's how the cancer kind of could come up. But once you have the cancer, it actually is a very targetable thing because we, we use that cancer's weakness against itself because it can't repair its DNA. 
we now have uh, the establishment of a new drug that exploits that problem, and those are called PARP inhibitors. And so adding PARP inhibitors to the initial treatment for patients, particularly with BRCA, which is BRCA, or with HRD, has added survival time for these patients. Uh, and not just a little, there's, there may even be patients that we're curing just from the, the extended treatment uh, with PARP inhibitor. All right. So uh, tell us a little bit about the Moffitt Cancer Center. I'm kind of switching gears because it is one of the National Cancer Institute's Comprehensive Cancer Centers. And I'm just kind of thinking about the benefits of someone being able to be treated at one of these comprehensive cancer centers. How would they get access? How would they, they find those cancer uh, institutes? And are, are you all doing anything different than a typical cancer institute? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm always puzzled by is that Many patients feel like they should start with their local oncology group, which may be very good, but uh, then they think, I'm going to hold that specialty center, uh, like an NCI-designated cancer center, if things don't work. But really, the, the ability to change the outcome, the long-term outcome, starts at the very beginning. And so if there's one thing I could change uh, when I'm seeing a lot of patients uh, for second and third opinions, is I, I wish I could go back in time sometimes to help them maybe modify some of their treatment plans at that time. Uh, we have, um, we're the only designated cancer center in the state of Florida. Uh, uh, so that means that we have the full uh, power of having a, a very robust uh, research network and some of the brightest people that are involved in that. And that includes my peers and colleagues in my department, uh, physician scientists that we work with, and a clinical trials team. Uh, all these all, the, all these steps of progress that we've made in, in getting longer outcomes all started with the very first patients who were able to go on clinical trials. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example here. Uh, just recently, there was an FDA approval of a drug called paflocyanine, which is an uh, antibody to a protein on a lot of ovarian cancer cells called folate receptor alpha. And that was tagged with a fluorescent antibody. And we would give that to patients before we went back to surgery to take out their tumor. And we were able to identify with a fluorescent camera at least 25% of the patients that would have been left with suboptimal disease had we just done the, the, the surgery by itself. And we know that taking out more disease is associated with longer survival. And so that happened because we're an NCI-designated cancer center and we can do that kind of research. And we're still the only place in the state of Florida that I'm aware of that has done that. Yeah. So... Um, you know, that, that, that's the kind of stuff you get access to. Um, we've got novel trials for patients who have recurrent disease, uh, and, and that includes things like cell therapy, where we can uh, test to see if somebody has a certain marker, and then we can take out their immune cells, re-engineer the immune cells to go out and find those cancer cells that have those markers. And so that, that, that can only be done at certain centers. And so I'd encourage people, if you hear a diagnosis say, I want to go see the, I want to go see the cancer center first to kind of see what they have to say as well. Yeah, that's good. Good that's advice. Good and that's fantastic mm -hmm. uh, uh, research and results you're getting. You're listening to Dr. Robert Wenham. He has been repeatedly voted by his physician peers as one of the top doctors 
in his field. So, Dr. Rob, I, I, this is this is going to be tough for you, but we, you know, as we wrap up all of our podcasts, when we have guests, we kind of like them to to kind of end with a, you know, what's the main point? What's the what's the take home message you would like our audience to know about gynecologic cancers or ovarian cancer? Um, I know that's a little tough with this conversation, but what what is that take home message for our audience from you, the expert? Uh, I think pretty easy. One, if you ever are confronted with the possible diagnosis or suspicion of having a cancer, go to see the experts first. Go to see the top place you can go to and, and get an opinion at that time. Uh, the second thing is know your family. Know your family history. If you have family members who've had a lot of a certain type of cancer, whether that be colon cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, all these things can be related in certain genetic syndromes, and there now is the power to screen for a lot of those yeah. or prevent them in the first place. And so th those, I'd say, are big, powerful takeaways in this. Plus, things are getting better. The survivals are, are getting better with these cancers, and I'm very optimistic about the future. That's great. Dr. Rob, thank you so much for coming on Live Forever-ish. Um, how could... Um is there a website for the Moffitt Cancer Center that you can share with our audience? Maybe they want to go check that out. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's www.moffitt.org. Uh, it's two F's and two T's, so M-O-F-F-I-T-T. -T. That's uh, one of the things that sometimes catches people. And if you go <laughs> on there, you can click under departments and uh, learn more. Yeah, that sounds great. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Our sponsor, Life Extension. Would like to thank our awesome listeners, right, with a 10% off discount at lifeextension.com. All you do is go to lifeextension.com, find the products you want, and at checkout, you type in podcast. That's all you got to do. Easy. Type in podcast for a 10% discount on your entire order, and that's simply our sponsor saying, um, you know, thanks for listening, right? Don't forget, you go to liveforeverish.com to check out more podcasts. We're now at 401. 401. We made it. We passed it. Heading into the future, right? Yes. Uh, when you do, hey, download it, like it, share it, comment, uh, and subscribe so you never miss a show. It's the one-two punch. Crystal doesn't want to do it right now. <laughs> the one-two punch. Give your email so you get uh, newsletters from our sponsor, and then you can um, subscribe to your favorite aggregate right there. That's lifeextension.com. I'm Dr. Mike. That's Dr. Crystal. Thanks for listening.